to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. In this episode, we will discuss the deeds of the Royal Australian Navy's eight destroyers and frigates that took part in multiple deployments to the Korean War. The Royal Australian Navy also deployed the aircraft carrier HMAS Sydney, and this is the subject of an earlier Australian Naval History podcast episode recorded in 2018, and that's still available for you to listen to. This episode has been recorded over a number of days to take account of expert availability and limitations imposed by the current COVID restrictions. Now, to discuss the Aryans, destroyers and frigates in the Korean War, I'm joined by Mr. Peter Djokovic, who is a senior naval historian at the Sea Power Centre Australia, Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths, who served in the Korean War, first as the gunnery officer in the aircraft carrier HMAS Sydney, and then as the gunnery officer of the destroyer HMAS Anzac during its second deployment to Korea. Guy joins us from his home in Sydney, where the sound you may hear in the background is very heavy rain coming down. And finally, Mr. Michael Kelly, who is a Korean War historian at the Australian War Memorial. Thank you all for joining me. Well, first off, Michael Kelly, can you tell us a bit about the roles that naval forces were to fulfil during the Korean War? Hello, Rob. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Yeah, the uh, naval forces that were uh, in and around Korea at the start of the war were soon very quickly put to work, initially on blockading duties. So they uh, were tasked with, including the Australian ships, uh, Shoalhaven and Bataan, were tasked with uh, blockading and escort duties, basically trying to cut off the very small uh, North Korean Navy from uh, having any major effect, which was quickly done. And because Korea is an entirely a a seaborne peninsula, basically having uh, east and west coasts that were easy to cut off. The US and British and Australian and, and uh, other Commonwealth uh, and UN forces were very quickly uh, able to uh, put a blockade around the Korean Peninsula and very much limit the uh, the North Korean shipping. Uh, then another major role that the ships were involved in as well, aside from the uh, blockading and escorting, was interdiction as well. So being able to uh, acquire and uh, fire on uh, shore-based targets as well. So uh, they did this very effectively. Peter Djokovic, as Michael has said, the first Australian ships to arrive in the Korean waters were the frigate Shoalhaven and the destroyer Bataan, and they were uh, certainly put to work very quickly. Part of their initial tasking was uh, on blockade and interdiction duties. But they arrived just four days after the North Korean invasion. Can you tell us a bit about how they were able to respond so quickly and maybe a little bit more detail about what they did during their initial tasking phase? Uh, yeah, thanks, Rob. Look, uh, the timing of the North Korean invasion was actually pretty fortuitous for the RAN, at least from an operational perspective. Uh, HMAS Shoalhaven was actually in Japan at the time. She was the Australian naval component of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force. So she was actually in the region and, and in a position to respond quickly. So she could have been uh, in Korean waters within you know, 24 hours. Uh, coincidentally, Shoalhaven was actually nearing the end of her deployment to Japan. So HMAS Bataan was on her way to, to relieve Shoalhaven. So she was actually in Hong Kong when, uh, when North Korean forces invaded in the south. So not only did the RN have a frigate already in the area, there was another destroyer also on the way and was going to be in the region you know, within a matter of days. 
So it's important to uh, to note, uh, as Michael said, sea control was very uh, important in the early stages of war. It was pretty much essential in preventing the immediate downfall of South Korea. Um, you know, the the UN needed to get ground forces onto the peninsula quickly. Um, you know, the, there was um, they were bombarding coastal targets. Um, as Michael said, they they set up a, a blockade very quickly, particularly around the, the west coast of the peninsula. Um, so that was uh, primarily what Shoalhaven was was employed in in the early stages of the war. She conducted a lot of escort operations between Sasebo in Japan and, and Busan in, on, the, on the south coast of Korea. Um, she spent a little bit of time doing patrol work in the Korea Strait and a little bit of time on on the uh, the blockade force in in on the west coast, but primarily escort duties for, for Shoalhaven in the early days. Um, Bataan arrived in, in Okinawa on, on the 1st of July and she was immediately put to, to escort work as well between Sasebo and Pulisan. Uh, and she actually um, formed part of the, the covering force for the amphibious landing of the American 1st Cavalry Division at uh, Pohangdong on, on the 18th of July as well. Um, she actually moved on to the west coast uh, and joined the blockade force on, on the 26th of July. And she actually became the first RAN unit to, to fire shots of the war on the 1st of August. Um, she was operating in the uh, the Heiju Gulf uh, in North Korea. Um, she came uh, under fire from a, a shore battery when she was about four miles offshore. And um, she, as, as luck would have it, as she was trying to escape, the, the ship actually lost power briefly. So she would, for, for a few moments, she was actually dead in the water while this North Korean battery was, was firing at her. And as uh, UN units came to know pretty well that uh, the North Koreans were actually really good with artillery. They were they were very accurate. And, um, you know, Bataan was, was straddled. So she had um, uh, shells landing on either side of the ship. She was straddled four times within 13 minutes. And the nearest shell landed less than 20 metres from the ship. You know, most of these guys in Bataan, you know, there would have been a few World War II veterans on board, but most of them were, you know, pretty green, new recruits. This being their first, uh, you know, combat experience, and they're having shells landing near their ship, you know, you know 20 metres away. It, um, it must have been a pretty terrifying experience. I can only imagine what what, what they were thinking at the time. But um, the time got underway. She returned fire pretty accurately herself. Um, but even as she was heading out to sea, the, the North Koreans uh, kept bombarding her and, and straddled her a few more times as she was getting out to sea as well. And it was a bit of a forewarning for UN forces as well that these North Koreans, um, you know, when they were handling artillery, they, they were certainly very good. They knew what they were doing. Well, Michael Kelly, let's step back a minute. We've we've heard briefly now from from you and Peter as to the RAN's quick and initial engagement in the Korean War, but the Australian forces, as as Peter mentioned, were part of the United Nations force under General Douglas MacArthur. Can you tell us a little bit about the overall command structure and also the the naval arrangements for the force? Rob, the initial or the supreme commander was uh, MacArthur, and he was the one that was initially given full control of the Australian naval forces. But uh, we had. Uh, Part, partly to assist the Australians, or definitely assisting the Australians, was the uh, the, the presence of the British uh, Far East Fleet, and it was the fact that they had uh, 22 ships on uh, on in, in and around Japanese waters at the outbreak of the Korean War that actually helped get a presence around uh, 
career very quickly and it was that uh, that uh, force that we uh, the Australian ships became a part of so the uh, the US 7th fleet which was uh, which would actually take uh, control eventually with uh, task force 77 wasn't up to full strength and was actually posted down in in the Philippines so it took a little while for them to get uh, up into uh, Korean waters and also to um, to maintain uh, or to actually uh, get a command structure going so it actually fell to the British to uh, start start uh, or have, have the initial command the initial uh, command was under Rear Admiral William Andrews and he had actually been a, uh, a long-time Royal Navy serviceman having served during the first and second world wars and uh, Korea was his third war so he actually uh, took control of what what was the Commonwealth what became known as the Commonwealth task group uh, to which uh, Shoalhaven and Bataan were attached and this was later then uh, bolstered by uh, ships from uh, New Zealand and Canada as well. So uh, in, initially you would have uh, the Commonwealth Task Group uh, in the serving in the East Coast and there was a US uh, Task Group on the West Coast. Uh, but uh, ships served on both 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 coasts. But uh, the overall, overall command would be uh, led by uh, Task Force 77, which was US command. Well, Peter Drogovich, coming back to you, until mid-1953, the Navy tried to keep two destroyers or frigates on task at any given time. I imagine there were quite a few challenges in doing so. And, you know, this is a long transit and and, and sustaining these vessels meant that were the deployments quite long? Yeah, well, it's, it's quite interesting to note. Um, at the end of World War II, Australia had the fourth largest navy in the world. You know, we had uh, uh, in excess of 300 seagoing vessels, nearly 40,000 personnel, uh, yet five years later, you know, the RN really did struggle to keep, you know, two ships on station in the, in the Korea theatre at the same time. Uh, and much of that was due to the natural realities of post-war demobilisation. So a large number of vessels were decommissioned. Uh, a, a lot of personnel were demobilised. Um, you know, many of them had joined for the duration of hostilities in World War II, so they all moved on. And so the, the post-war force shrunk to about a quarter of its, of its wartime peak, down to about 10,000 people. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the government's priorities naturally shifted away from defence um, and, and lay in, in reconstruction and the overall development of the economy. So, you know, there was a commensurate decrease in the Navy's budget, as there was for the other forces as well. Um, so, as you might expect, there were personnel and financial pressures on the RAN. Um, and so being able to maintain these ships on stations to provide them with fuel and food and water and ammunition, they were using a lot of ammunition, uh, conducting coastal bombardments and that sort of thing. And um, you know, think, then thinking about the crew fatigue as well. These were, were all things that, that the Naval Board were um, took into um, real consideration. Um, and it became pretty obvious, the initial plan was to, to have the ships on six month rotations and it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be possible. So uh, in November 1950, they made the decision pretty early to extend um, deployments out to, to 12 months as opposed to six. Um, it, it, that still resulted in some problems in, in terms of getting new ships onto, onto the station. Um, Part of the problem was the in, in theatre commanders, the people who were actually running the war, didn't see a lot of utility for frigates. Uh, they really wanted destroyers, and, and you know, we, we just didn't have that many destroyers to send. Uh, we had to, you know, the new battle-class battle, battle class destroyers, Tobruk and Anzac. They were coming online soon, but you know, they, they weren't fully worked up. They didn't have all the equipment that they required installed, so you know, that was pretty problematic. 
um, it ended up that we we ended up sending a frigate because we didn't have um, much choice. HMAS Murchison uh, went up and relieved Bataan in June 1951, and she actually performed really well. She she actually changed um, the you know how how frigates were perceived in the in Korean waters, and I'll talk a little bit more about about her deployment a bit later as well. Um, but Warramunga was up there at, at the time as well, and her relief was even more problematic. There was hopes that Bataan could be turned around quickly and relieve her, um, in, you know, really quickly. But uh, it became pretty obvious that Bataan needed uh, a lot more maintenance work than was uh, originally realised. Um, so it was eventually decided that ANZAC would deploy to, to relieve Warramunga after all, at least on a short-term deployment, almost as a stopgap measure. Uh, and then um, Bataan could hopefully be turned around to, to relieve ANZAC. Uh, so while Bataan was undergoing maintenance, her crew was undergoing training, getting prepared for their deployment. But again, the, the, the maintenance period blew out and Bataan needed more work than, than was realised. And uh, she just wasn't going to be ready in time to go up to, uh, to relieve ANZAC as well. So again, um, Tobruk was the one that um, was selected to go up and relieve ANZAC, again, on a short-term deployment. Um, but her crew, uh, you know, hadn't been preparing for a deployment. Uh, so there was basically a crew change out. So Bataan's crew, uh, as they were training while the, the ship was undergoing maintenance, a, a great bulk of them came across to Tobruk to, to man her. And, and Tobruk and, and, and um, Bataan actually had a, a, a change of command. The commanders basically uh, traded command. Uh, Commander Richard, Prick, uh, Richard Peake took over uh, in Tobruk and uh, they went up and, and uh, ended up on station for about five months in theatre from, from October 51 to February 52. Uh, it wasn't until after that that the RN was really able to rotate ships through on a more regular basis. Well, Michael Kelly, as you and Peter have mentioned, the destroyers... Uh, seem to alternate between escorting the aircraft carriers and doing inshore work. Can you tell us a bit more broadly about what this sort of work involved, particularly in terms of the, the inshore operations? Rob, the inshore operations were uh, some of the bread and butter work, or a lot of the bread and butter work of the uh, the, the Navy elements up there. And they could be doing anything from uh, in, in, uh, engaging shore targets, such as uh, shore batteries, uh, North Korean or Chinese shore batteries, to supporting South Korean, uh, they call them werewolves. And, and I, I know Peter will discuss that later with Bataan, but uh, I know uh, they, they did a lot of the uh, that uh, supporting of uh, South Korean operations uh, against the North, North Korean and Chinese uh, from uh, basically helping them maintain and uh, hold positions on islands just off the coast uh, against uh, against attack from uh, the North Koreans. But by far the biggest thing that the uh, the Royal Australian Navy uh, ships d did take part in, which was uh, Bataan and Warramunga, Munga, sorry, was the uh, the Inchon landings. So this is the uh, the great breakout uh, battle that uh, MacArthur had overseen, uh, which took place uh, in mid September of 1950. And uh, the Bataan and Warramunga took part in uh, the screening operations, so basically uh, putting ships forward, uh, putting themselves forward and uh, gathering intelligence, looking at uh, tides and and, uh, and water flow, but also running uh, interference operations against the North Koreans at that time. Uh, so basically they wouldn't uh, get an idea that uh, Incheon was where the attack was, was coming forward. So this is one of the, uh, probably the, the, the biggest operation that uh, the RAN took part in as far as uh, shore uh, uh, inshore operations went 
um, and they also, as the uh, the Chinese came into the war and the uh, the UN forces on land were actually uh, made to withdraw, they took part in uh, evacuating troops and civilians from places like Chinampo as well. And uh, uh, this is uh, one of the things that uh, they they actually did really quite well as well was getting in close and being able to pick up civilians while still providing um, gunfire naval gunfire support uh, against shore targets as well. Peter, we've heard a little uh, already about the accuracy of North Korean artillery, and we've heard at least uh, of one incident where, you know, an RAN uh, unit was straddled by very accurate uh, shore bombardment fire. But there were other occasions, weren't there, when ships came under enemy fire from these shore batteries. Can you tell us about some of these other incidents? I mentioned uh, HMAS Murchison uh, heading up to uh, heading up to Korea and, and sort of changing the way frigates were viewed. It was um, due largely um, to some operations in, in the Han River estuary that she was conducting. Um, you know, and as you mentioned, the, um, the the North Koreans and the Chinese, you know, they were, they were no mugs when it came to handling big guns. Certainly, you know, the the Han River estuary. Uh, is sort of on the boundary between north and south, and uh, at this point in in July 1951, there were there were peace talks going on, and um, as often happens when peace talks are going on, um, military or naval operations are ordered. Um, you know, the people who are conducting peace talks like to be able to talk from a position of strength, and so a show of strength, a show of military strength, is often called upon for them to be able to do that. So that's what Murchison was called upon. Um, it, you know by entering the estuary and, and conducting shore bombardments actually near where the peace talks were going on in, in uh, Kaesong. Now, the estuary itself um, is a navigational nightmare. There, there's shallow channels, there's shifting mud banks. Um, it's a very difficult area to operate in. So this is where the frigates really came into their own. They were the only vessels with the draft shallow enough to get in and operate and with guns that were, you know, had the range to actually hit their targets. So um, Murchison entered the estuary on the evening of the 25th of July and quickly found that the charge that they had simply didn't match what they were finding in the estuary. The dangers of running aground were, were very real and Murchison actually did that on the first night of operations. She, she grounded, grounded temporarily and freed herself. Um, the, the ship that she was operating with, HMS Cardigan Bay, actually grounded three times in that first night of operations. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they managed to conduct a shore bombardment and get out. Um, now, you know, this operation in the Han River estuary was originally meant to go for just a couple of days and it ended up going on for more than four months. The first two months of that, uh, while bombardments were going on, the ships were actually conducting a lot of survey work uh, just to rechart the area and actually conduct um, operations in there. Now. Um, they were sort of fortunate that the North Koreans had evacuated the area uh, initially, but they started to come back and it was uh, on the 18th of September that they started to, to fight back in, 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 uh, with any sort of gusto. Um, a South Korean survey vessel was hit by a shell and it was actually Murchison who then engaged that shore battery and silenced it. Uh, but uh, on the 28th of September, Murchison really came in for, for some attention from the, from the, uh, from the North Koreans. Uh, they were operating uh, in, in a channel near the mouth of the Yisong River, which is actually quite north, uh, far north in the estuary, um, where there was a, a lot of, uh, you know, it, it was in the guts of uh, where the North North Koreans were located. So she was 
had uh, entered a, a, a narrow channel and almost immediately found herself under heavy fire from guns, mortars, machine guns, rifles. Um, you know, she was really starting to get peppered. Um, but the narrowness of the channel meant, meant that Murchison couldn't turn around. She couldn't get out. She had no other choice but to continue down the channel reach the end, drop her anchor, turn on the anchor, retrieve it, and then come back through and run the gauntlet through the kill zone again. Um, so she did this and she returned fired and she, she actually returned fired quite accurately and knocked out a few uh, gun emplacements and, and, and hit a trench and, and apparently inflicted some pretty heavy casualties on, on the North Koreans. And for her part, miraculously, she only suffered one man wounded, but um, it wasn't the only time. Two days later, she came under even heavier fire in the same sort of area. Uh, she entered a channel in in a in a similar spot, and uh, she met with some pretty light fire as she was going down this channel. Uh, and as she reached the end and, and turned and started coming back, and her commanding officer, uh, Lieutenant Commander Dollar, had ordered a, a bombardment as she proceeded back through the channel. And as she was coming back, she was hit with uh, ferocious return fire. You know, she was um, hit several times with armor-piercing shells. A 75 millimeter shell exploded in the engine room. Uh, another shell went through the radar aerials and barely missed the gunnery officer. Um, so, you know, she was really getting hammered and, she, and, and returning fire at the same time. And um, there, there was a quote from the, the executive officer, Lieutenant uh, William Roberts, um, after she she turned and started heading back down this channel and he's, he's looking aft from his position on the bridge. And he said he could see the chief most in the bait standing straddle-legged on a ready-use uh, uh, locker. Um, exposed and making no concession to the enemy fire, and he he likened this guy to a uh, a coach of a tug of war team using arms, body, and voice to maximum effect, trying to urge the gun crews onto uh, onto onto greater efforts. And you can just imagine this guy with you know chaos breaking out about him, you know, trying to urge on his team to keep fighting. So it's again, it's quite miraculous that they came through that encounter with only only three men wounded and, and no other casualties. And thankfully, the shell that hit the engine room. Um, uh, didn't do any extensive damage. Uh, there's one other incident that I'd like to touch on really quickly. Um, it was a significant incident, especially for the gunnery officer on board, Lieutenant uh, Andrew Robertson, uh, who I think we're Andrew Griffiths might talk about a bit later as well. Um, he was a gunnery officer in um, uh, when HMAS Anzac took part in one of the, the longer running battles uh, with the shore battery of the war. Um, she was uh, anchored off the island of Chodo, which was a strategically important island in the Heiju Gulf, and she came under fire from um, uh, some 76 millimeter guns on the on the coast uh, that were hidden in caves. Um, you know, it wasn't really the policy of UN vessels to try and engage in running battles with shore batteries, but as you know, it was fairly typical of of, of the. Um, uh, the west coast of Korea. She was surrounded by shoals and, and, and navigation in the area was, was quite difficult. So uh, the commanding officer, uh, Captain Gattaca, didn't really have much choice but to try and engage and silence these guns. And Anzac being a, a pretty new pretty new ship, she had her own teething problems with, uh, with the gunnery. But, um, you know, she had four, four and a half inch guns and, and 12, four, uh, 40 millimeter bofers. And, and Lieutenant Robertson was in, was in charge of these guns. And he um, he laid down a very accurate fire on, on these shore batteries. She fired 174 rounds over the course of the next half hour. And, uh, you know, we've spoken about the accuracy of, of North Korean shells. They, they landed around 50 shells um, pretty close to the ship. And um, one actually hit anchor, uh, Anzac's anchor buoy. So they were pretty lucky to get away uh, as well. But um, you know, 
uh, Anzac actually silenced a battery, uh, battery a, a, little, a little more than uh, around about half an hour after the uh, the encounter um, uh, started, and uh, Lieutenant Robinson was was recognised with a Distinguished Service Cross for his part in the action. Um, and as a postscript to that encounter, Anzac actually uh, celebrated Australia Day in 1953 by returning and bombarding that same battery. So I think they wanted a, a bit of a get square there. Well, this is a great point to uh, bring you in, Guy Griffiths. And as, as Peter just mentioned, your friend Andrew Robertson was the gunnery officer in uh, the Battle Class Destroyer Anzac. But during his second deployment, you took over uh, as the gunnery officer. Can you tell us a bit about the challenges of operating these modern ships off, off the coast of Korea? Well, to me, uh, the um, I was the gunnery officer. Andrew had been the gunnery officer. And um, so I took over. But my main worry in the ship, and it was personal, was the capability of the fire control system for the twin uh, four or five inch uh, guns in the turrets. And um, I know we carried out, we could carry out uh, surface firings against shore targets. Um, okay and uh, got reasonable results but from the point of view of uh, anti-aircraft fire the flight plane true as it was known in those days <clears throat> uh, was less reliable and uh, that worried me considerably because I'd had a fair amount of experience in WW2 and air attacks on ships and so on and I didn't want to be uh, Anzac to be caught short uh, off Korea but um, so that was my constant personal worry and uh, there didn't seem to be anything we could do about it with ship staff but we tried all the time I had served under <clears throat> two very good captains, Captain Gattaca and Captain Mesley. And um, our duty were, was to uh, interdict uh, the North Korean um, uh, supply lines down the coastal routes on the west coast and on the east coast. On the east coast, it was um, endeavoring to um, shoot up the supply trains uh, when they were out in the open, but mostly the coastal train route was um, <clears throat> in tunnels, so it was um, sort of snap shooting, which was quite difficult. But um, some of the destroyers managed it, but I must say uh, we didn't get a, a train engine to um, uh, disable the train. The other particular thing um, of course, we were operating in uh, severe winter conditions, and um, I hadn't really done that in WW2. Although it was sort of obviously cold in Scarpa Flow, but uh, not um, to the degree that it was in the Korean area. So that was a change, and it took get some took some getting used to because, um, of course, Anzac and its sister ship, Tobruk, they both had open bridges. And so when the snow came down and the sleet came down, 
came down on those watch keeping on the bridge. And to continue, Guy, do the crew have adequate clothing for the conditions? The short answer to that is no, we didn't. And um, <clears throat> with the experience we'd had in various places in WW2, <clears throat> the Navy had not made any move towards having the potential to provide proper winter gear for um, anything else, such as we had in Korea. And I personally, together with a number of other people, <clears throat> went down to the arming clothing store in Curie, and I got myself a nice, long, khaki-coloured jacket with hood, which I must say on our open bridge in Anzac, um, help one um, uh, enormously. Yeah. Otherwise, it, it just would have been plain damn cold. Well, Peter Djokovic, let me come back to you. During Bataan's 1952 deployment, she was commanded by Commander Warwick Brace's Brace Girdle, and that's a name that will be known to those avid listeners of the Naval History Podcast series for some of his ex exploits during uh, the Second World War. But he and his ship left quite an impression during the Korean War as well. Can you tell us a little bit about her exploits? Well, Bryce Girdle was uh, a, a pretty interesting character. He, he entered the Aran College in 1925 and, and you know, he, he wasn't a great scholar, but he was still awarded the King's Gold Medal for exemplary conduct, performance of duty and good influence amongst his peers. So, you know, he, he, he was a, a, a certainly a well-respected officer. He was awarded a, a Distinguished Service Cross and Bar for his service as a gunnery officer aboard um, uh, Perth and Shropshire, respectively, in, in World War Two, and he would earn a second uh, bar to his DSC, as well as the United States Legion of Merit for his service in Korea. And the Korean war correspondent, Ronald McKee, actually described him as uh, a big, ruddy, cheerful looking man with smooth black hair and one of those deceptive, innocent English schoolboy faces. He had what he called his parish to patrol and protect off the west coast of Korea, and he would go in and fight at the drop of a hat. And I think that pretty pretty well sums him up. I, I don't think that there was uh, a, a target that Brace Girdle didn't like. Um, he was a gunnery officer and, you know, destroyers were, uh, uh, they're a gunnery platform. That's what they're designed to do. They're, they're designed to shoot at stuff. And, and Brace Girdle took that job pretty seriously. So uh, Bataan arrived in Korea, Korea on, on the 4th of February, 1952, and uh, immediately took up station off the West Coast as part of the blockade force. And look, Bataan, Bataan did a lot. You know, she was always doing something. Um, and you can sort of see how people uh, appreciated Brace Girdle as a leader in, in the way he writes. He, you know, he was, um, he, he was always described as an energetic personality and he was always looking for something to do. He didn't want his ship lying idle. Uh, so they carried out shore bombardments at every opportunity, almost every day, to the point that um, the Naval Board actually chastised him at one point for excessive use of ammunition. Uh, he just responded that the ammunition was almost out of date, so he may as well fire it at the enemy. It's, kind of a difficult thing to argue with, I guess. But, uh, you know, as, as an example of, of his attitude, he's um, uh, in, 
Bataan and, and uh, Hajimus Cardigan Bay actually fired a 60, uh, a 56 gun salute uh, in honour of the late uh, King George the Sixth. And of course, as uh, as they would, they actually fired the salute at the enemy in the, in the vicinity of Walsari. So, uh, so they, they put all that ammunition to good use as well. Uh, like I said, Bataan did a lot while she was out there. There was there's one particular incident that I, I want to relate to you was. Um, uh, one incident when, um, in mid-April when uh, she was responsible for the defence of a particular island, Chodow Island, in, in the Heiju Gulf area. Um, uh, sorry, uh, Yongmeido, not, 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 uh, not Chodow. Um, Yongmeido was, uh, again, pretty important. There was a South Korean wolf pack guerrilla garrison stationed there. And uh, Bryce Girdle had received intelligence that a, a North Korean attack was planned there. Now, the thing about Yongmei though is that uh, at low tide, um, you can actually walk there from from the mainland. Uh, so this uh, appeared to be the North Korean plan. At, at low tide, they would walk across the, the drying out mud flats and, and and launch an invasion on foot from the mainland. Um, so this is what happened just after midnight on the 13th of April. Um, Bataan received an invasion alarm from Yongmei Do and they immediately started open fire and it was directed by the, the Wolfpack, uh, Wolfpack commander on the island. But the exchanges were confused, there were difficulties with communication and after about 20 minutes, Brace Girdle ordered a stop so that he could, he needed a clearer picture of what was actually happening. Uh, once that happened, um, they opened fire again and they were uh, received confirmation from the wolf pack on the island that they were actually firing with effect now. They were, they were hitting their target. And so Brace Gordel ordered a, uh, a sort of a rolling barrage, sort of World War One style, um, you know, starting to push back the North Korean forces and then following them um, uh, as, as they moved back uh, across the mudflats. And uh, so the invasion was completely frustrated um, by about 1.40 a.m. that morning, so a little more than an hour and a half after it started. Uh, if I've got time, just just quickly as an aside to that, what Brace Kirtle, um noticed is that there was uh, an area on the mainland where the North Koreans were sort of out of range of uh, out of UN guns. Um, and we've spoken about the difficulties in, in navigation. The, the, the UN ships could only operate in particular chartered channels, and there were no channels that that would bring the ships close enough to uh, fire upon this, this sort of staging area on the mainland. Uh, so, um, Brace Girdle decided that you know they needed to plot in, uh, or extend a channel, um, a particular channel, by about three miles to bring this area into range. Um, so he embarked uh, Lieutenant John Golder into a small um, United States Navy landing craft along with four other sailors, and over the course of four hours, they took about 200 soundings and plotted a, a, an extension of this channel to about three and a half miles. Uh, and, and the next night, um, Bataan was able to, to use this new channel and actually direct fire at this, this staging area that had, that up until that point had been protected from, from naval gunfire. And, and so good was their job actually that um, uh, um, the, the, the cruiser HMS Belfast, a much larger ship, was able to use that channel the night after that and also conduct a, conduct a bombardment in that area as well. Um, you know, so that, that was a, actually a significant, a significant move on Brace Girdle's part. So, you know, Bataan and Brace Girdle, they, they earned some well-deserved high praise for their, their deployment. Captain Gattaker actually described Brace Girdle as uh, an, an officer with great powers of leadership, tremendous energy and dash. And he actually recommended Brace Girdle for, for immediate promotion. 
Um, but as it turned out, uh, Bataan turned out to be Brace Girdle's only sea command. And um, uh, without uh, any real um, prospect of being promoted to captain, he actually retired from the service in 1957. So, um, yeah, that was that was the end of his naval career. Brings us up to the 27th of July, 1953, and an armistice is signed, but the destroyers continued to deploy until 1954 to monitor adherence to the armistice. So just to wrap up this episode, I'd like to ask each of you for your final thoughts on the service of the destroyers and frigates uh, during the Korean War. Let's start with you, Guy Griffiths. Well, um... The, the actual employment of the, the ships in the Korean theatre was similar to uh, jobs that we'd done in World War II. But uh, as the Korean War was some uh, six, seven years after WW2, I think it was um, <clears throat> must have been quite hard for the RAN to bring ships up to date to go back and do shooting again in the Korean War. And uh, the problem was illustrated by uh, the fact that uh, uh, ANZAC's deployment was extended from six months to ten months. Uh, That lessened the burden on us a little bit because it certainly made sure that we were out of the winter weather and the open bridge and all that sort of tough business we'd been through in the wintertime up there. So, um, yes, I think they, they had more of a tough time down here than we realized at the time. It was explained to us the reason why we had to extend, and of course that was accepted. But um, we, we sort of, I'm not sure that we realized how far down the RAN had possibly relaxed after WW2. Michael Kelly, how about you? Some final thoughts? Rob, just in agreeing with Guy, I think uh, looking at the uh, the use of these frigates and the, the destroyers in Korea, it was uh, the, the Australians performed at a really high level for a sustained period of time. But also they had to perform on, uh, at, at the political level as well. And I think the Australians, out of any of the UN allies that uh, served alongside the, the Americans, actually came out with a somewhat greater prestige than uh, anybody else in the, the alliance as well. So uh, looking at how we managed the deployment of our forces, even though so initially, the uh, the US was uh, thinking we may get three ships up into Korea. It was only, only always going to be two, just due to lack of manpower and shipping available to actually sustain that effort in Korea. Uh, the political aspect of, of uh, managing uh, our forces in Korea was uh, certainly something that uh, was managed particularly well. And, and to actually have things like the uh, the ANZUS Treaty, which was signed in 1951, come about as uh, from that political uh, uh, level for um, the Australian commitment to the UN and, and to Korea uh, was it was a great thing. And finally, Peter Djokovic, a final thought from you. I think, I think the Korean War was actually pretty significant for the REN. I, I think the REN learned a lot. Um, it, it was sort of a template for the type of operations that the REN was going to be conducting over the next you know, 50 odd years and even today. Uh, the the RN gained a, a fair bit of experience in joint operations in, in World War II, but Korea was the first time that the RN uh, operated as a joint, uh, as a unit in a joint UN task force. So, you know, combined operations and sharing command. I think the RN learned a lot um, 
uh, in conducting combined operations with international partners. So, yeah, I think it was certainly significant in, in shaping REN thought for the next, you know, 50-odd years. Indeed, we should recommend our listeners listen in to the three episodes on the RN's involvement in the Persian Gulf since uh, 1990 is just a, another example of the RN's involvement in such task forces and UN operations as well. Well, my thanks to Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths, Peter Djokovic and Michael Kelly. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, and its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Naval Institute of Australia, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that others can enjoy it as well. Goodbye for now.